Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another um, exciting episode of Morning Coffee. Um, I'm whispering, kind of, uh, maybe a little more than usual, because uh, it is actually a work day, and um, I know for a fact that Lucy, and indeed Nick, although he's higher up in the house, will have to get up at some point to do some work, and I would rather not disturb them with my dulcet tones, as well, I'll, I'll try not to anyway, as best I can, but um, it is a little early, maybe even a little early by my standards. Um, I, I, you know, I'm generally up kind of just after six anyway, but for some reason, last night, I don't know, I was waking up like every couple of hours, I couldn't really tell you why, which is weird because we've just come through the other side of a pretty horrible heat wave and... Um, you think if there was one night I was going to sleep a little better, it would be tonight, back when, you know, the air isn't burning. But, you know, there we go. I guess my body hates me. Although, mind you, I did wake up kind of feeling energised. So, yeah, I guess it's all good. Maybe I'm just going to squeeze an extra extra half hour out of the day. It's been a... I mean, as I'm sure you're aware, it's been fiendishly warm this week. And um, the office where I do my day job has not been coping especially well with the heat. We're up on the fourth floor, so I think not only do we have the sun's rays kind of scorching us from above, but we also have like three floors worth of sweaty, suffering people beneath us kind of radiating upwards. So yeah, we are absolutely cooking. And then Wednesday, which was meant to be, you know, the real the, the real peak of um, this um, this heat, wasn't actually that bad. Like I... I remember I was sitting in the office and, you know, obviously, you know, sticking to the desk, you know, with a degree of sweatiness. But I was thinking, this is actually bearable. Like, maybe we've dodged the worst of it. And maybe even our, well, we don't quite have air conditioning, but we have coolers, which are meant to just circulate cool heat. Although it turns out the only cold place in the building is in the lobby. So, obviously, security guards are very happy. And I don't begrudge them that. But he said... But yeah, it was actually bearable on Wednesday, and I was thinking, maybe we dodged a bullet, maybe we're okay. And then when I left to come home, I stepped outside, and my feet immediately started burning. I was wearing sandals, by the way. Because, you know, if you can't... You know, it turns out, don't you know, there's no legal maximum temperature. Wait, minimum? I don't know. Yeah, so like, I think if your office is less than 16 degrees, and yeah, you legally shouldn't be working in those conditions, but for all I'm aware, it could be like plus 45 degrees centigrade. And you can't complain. But I was like, well, look, if you're going to get to that stage, I'm wearing sandals. I don't care what you say. These are my hobbit roots kind of emerging. I remember back in back when I was at secondary school, we did a, a few kind of... Because I, I, right after I finished secondary school, I went off to Peru for about five weeks. It was part of a world challenge thing. So myself and like 12 other students or ex-students at that point and a couple of teachers went over for five weeks and we kind of travelled from one end of the country to another. Um, we did a bit of, you know, the typical charity work. We did a bit of, we built some toilets for a community. I can never remember the name of the village where we built them, but it wasn't far from a town, well, it was a few hours away from a town called Chachapoyas, which I think was the nearest point of reference. And yeah, like my memories of Peru essentially are, kind of just having non-stop, well, if not 
I think I actually had food poisoning one day. I think that was the worst day of my life. Started with a guy accidentally punching a ceiling fan. And then, then came the vomiting and the rest. And then we had a 14-hour bus journey. But I'm going off on a tangent. But yeah, worst day of my life. Don't want to repeat it. But yeah, as part of um, preparation for going to Peru and all the inevitable hiking we did, we did used to do these training weekends off in um, like Snowdonia or Brecon Beacons. Like we, I think the longest one we did was five days, just you know, heading out, living in tents, hiking each day, trying to get used to that lifestyle. And um, I remember I got this is going somewhere, I swear. But I remember getting like a really bad uh, toe problem. Like I think I had like an ingrowing toenail or something, and it got horribly infected and nasty to the point where I couldn't even wear shoes and uh, until I got it sorted. And um, I think uh, I developed a bit of a hobbit-like reputation towards the end of that period because I remember returning from that trip and I had a big walking stick, like a kind of tall piece of wood, like a Gandalfy kind of thing. And I'm walking around with a rucksack on my back and just these great big bare, hairy feet. Because, you know, let's face it, aside from like the weird toe thing i've i've been blessed with pretty powerful feet like they are they are remarkable but um yeah and certainly after i had the surgery i think i finished um to, to fix my toes i remember i i finished secondary school in in sandals which led to um certain well i don't know not always charitable comments but i think the best ones compared me to uh certain messiah figures hey which i can live with so hey good morning I swear there was a story there, but uh, thankfully we made it through the heat, and we are alive. If you listen very carefully, you might be able to hear the sound of um, gentle motors whirring in the background, because um, there is a 3D printer running uh, just in the garage, which is uh, just behind me in the hallway. And uh, it's for one piece of spare floor we could find. I mean, I guess for one thing we're not really blessed with here at Big Punch Towers are is um, ample workspace. Uh, we are forever covering every surface we can with stuff. Oh. And because of this thing, which isn't massive, it's smaller than you would think, um, because it can't generate, because it does generate a lot of heat rather, I wanted to, I didn't want to put it on like the wooden dining table, I wanted to put it somewhere flat and secure and safe. So it's currently perched on uh, a tiny kind of square meter of bare concrete in the garage, which is perhaps the only space of its kind. Uh, it's nestled just between Nick's car, my old bike, um, Nick's old surfboard, Nick's old canoe. Nick has a lot of water sports related things. I'm not entirely sure why. And uh, yeah, and it's just kind of walled off with the door of uh, the unused door of one of Ali's cupboards. So, yeah, nothing if not to make do. But um, I'm currently holding in my hands um, the second ever, I guess, manufactured or designed piece I've run off uh, a 3D printer. And it's kind of it's kind of mesmeric in its beauty. I'm just going to hold it up to the mic and tap it so you can get that kind of plasticky quality. It's got a certain weight and heft of um, a lot of the cheap plastic toys I enjoyed when I was growing up. It doesn't, you know, it's interesting. Now we're getting to an age where people can manufacture this stuff 
in their bedroom, really. And it's, it kind of shines a real light on, uh, you know, the manufacturing techniques and skills that went went into a lot of, a lot of the tat I enjoyed as a kid. But no, I think as I've mentioned before on the podcast, and certainly on my Twitter feed, since about Christmas, I've been working on a uh, a daft little arts and crafts project. Uh, partly because I'm making something cool, but also because I spend a lot of time at the computer. Like I spend a lot of time writing or doing emails or just kind of organising big punchy stuff. And it occurred to me it might be nice to step away from it. If I had if I had a hobby that wasn't, you know, the problem is when your hobby becomes your job you know, with writing and editing for me, then, you know, what do you do when you're not working? Anyway, I'm trying to be arts and craftsy. And as a kid, I made a lot of stuff, mostly with cardboard and sellotape. They are the only kind of resources I had at my disposal. But uh, yeah, I've kind of advanced a bit. So I've been working on a model of the Empyrean, which I hope you're familiar with, is the Afterlife from Afterlife Inc. And... Um, it's about a foot tall. Uh, it's made of wood and PVC piping and a lot of modeling clay and spray paint. And I did a lot of um, calculations just before Christmas to try and get it all scaled as best we could from the original drawing. And uh, yeah, it's really, I'm, I'm quite pleased with it. And I've been coming back to it on and off. I don't want to say I've been working on it solidly for six months because that would make me seem very slow. But um it's yeah, like I said, it's slowly coming together, and we've only got a couple of heavens, a couple of levels left to put together. And one of the most challenging ones was um, uh, Macanon, the oh god, he's test now for my own canon, uh, the fifth heaven and capital city of the Imperium. So it's just a massive cityscape, and if you can imagine, I've got this kind of bare wooden disc. Uh, kind of uh, organised around a central shaft. So it's like a Tower tower of Hanoi thing. You've got all these discs stacked on top of each other. And uh, yeah, the hardest part would be actually manufacturing a cityscape. Actually kind of making that look all right. Um, my initial thought had been to do it with kind of blocks of wood to add a certain kind of rustic charm, but... I think uh, the real lifesaver here has been the 3D printer. Um, at the weekend, I manufactured the bottom of the afterlife, so Shemayim, which is really just a glorified uh, inverted cone with um, the top sliced off and a hole in the centre so it can be arranged around the central shaft. And uh, that went surprisingly well. So we've moved up from that to something a bit more, a bit more complex. So if I could describe this piece, it's like, uh, oh, I don't know, it's maybe three inches, four inches on its longest length, uh, longest edge. It is a circle cut into a quarter. So it is a quarter pie slice of a circle with a like a little bite out of a tip. And rising off this flat plane are buildings, which the tallest of which is maybe only three centimetres tall. But yeah, it's a full-on cityscape and... I've got to say, like as as a kind of amateur who's just willing to learn and try new things, I'm kind of amazed at what you can actually do now just with free software at your disposal. Because I've never done any modelling before, but I uh, I grabbed a um, it's a free piece of software software called um, 
Vectory, and it's actually browser-based. So that's V-E-C-T-A-R-Y. And yeah, you just open it up in Chrome and do a bit of manipulation. It's kind of remarkable, really. So I've been building just this week on and off, and the beauty of having it in your browser is that if you've got a spare five minutes, you can just fire it up and get to work on it again. But yeah, because I am only an amateur and I'm working with essentially just crude geometric shapes, building a city wasn't actually that challenging because every individual shape is really quite simple. It's just a it's just a glorified cuboid, and to mix it up a bit, I would put a, a slope occasionally on one of the roofs, or you know, we'd add a, a cylinder or you know, a little kind of squat factory building. But essentially, it's just repeating units, very simple pieces over and over again to create the illusion of complexity. And yeah, I, I say. I don't mean to brag, but I say I would say, holding it up to my eye, it is a, a cityscape that would rival most real-world places, like be it Sydney, Toronto, New York. I'm really, really quite chuffed with it, but done in miniature. So the idea is I'm not to tax the old 3D printer, is that I've made it in quarters, so that if we print the same unit now four times, in fact, the second one is running behind me now, hence the noise of the 3D printer, the four missing quarters, like, uh, I don't know, like some ancient amulet, uh, shattered at birth. They can be assembled to form uh, a disc with a hole in the middle, which would then slot around the central shaft. And yeah, we're getting, yeah, I mean, like, you know, proof of concept, it's really quite exciting. I mean, I was, at worst, I was expecting, oh, at least I'd learn something from it, but I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but I think we might be kind of first time lucky he said, which is obviously famous last words of a doomed man. But there we go. Arts and crafts. Now, we've been talking a lot lately, kind of just, I guess, both as a crew at Big Punch and also, I know there's a discussion going on in the wider community at the moment. But um, a few weeks ago, I, I wrote a blog post about I don't know, just comic village in general, by which I mean kind of the environment and community in which kind of indie creators like myself um, make, sell, and generally publicize their books. You know, the thing thing we're living in at the moment. Um, I use the term term comic village, which was initially, well, it's essentially part of the MCM, conventions you know the mcm brand i don't think they own a a trademark or a copyright on it as such but it's just what they call the area where the independent creators live um you know read artist alley or whatever you know it's just the comic area but because so many of the same faces go to that area year in year out actually rather than just being a space on the convention floor it becomes a quite a good phrase for just describing the community because it is like it is a community i mean it's a community of individuals but you see the same people at every show because this is our livelihood you know this is what we do this is how we get our art out there we don't have the resources to pay other people to do it for us or indeed to market it to the extent that Marvel, DC or Image, 2000 AD, any of the big companies do. Like, you know, 
these are the people, when I talk of the comic village, I'm referring to the people who go to every show, partly partly because they want to and they love it, but also partly because they don't have a lot of choice. Like, you know, conventions are, you know, the lifeblood of what we do. I've said it before, but like the vast, vast, vast majority of what we sell as Big Punch Studios is over the table at conventions. It's direct, it's to customers. Um, And of course, you know, if we talk to people, you get that personal connection and it's those kind of relationships you build, which, you know, make fans, which kind of like serve you well in the long run. Now, there's definitely um, another argument here, perhaps for, you know, another time, but to talk about whether this dependence on comic conventions is healthy. Uh, I had some very interesting discussions with people and, you know, it's it's never good to be that dependent on something. I think we've kind of, because we're we're artists, and I, I use that in a broad sense because I know I'm only a writer, but, you know, because we are creators, we tend to focus on the creative side of things and just hope that the rest will look after itself or sort itself out. Now, we've been, as Big Punch, we've been talking a lot about trying to break our dependence on shows. We're exploring new avenues. We're trying to find ways to engage our fans all year round or indeed to develop, you know, we we have fans, we have international fans, you know, and how do we reach them outside of, you know, UK comic conventions? So we're, it'd be nice if we could get to a point where essentially we're going to a convention because we want to, not because, you know, we need to. I think that's something we should all strive for. But like I said, that's maybe a discussion for another day because I think the debate at the moment is if this is how it is at present, if this, if you know, if these are the conditions we have to live and work with at conventions, if we need conventions at the time being, how can we make them better? How can we improve our lot, as it were? I'm just going to go for a refill. So yeah, I wrote this article, and while I wasn't blaming MCM as such, because, you know, it's just one of many conventions, it is the biggest, and in many ways the problems that it faces in how it represents comic creators um, are symptomatic of some of the bigger problems facing the entire country, really. I mean, we are in the UK, it's a relatively small country, and, you know, it's a microcosm, it's, it's small enough where everything affects everything and, you know, there's enough of a small enough and dedicated enough community where we can talk to each other and we know what's going on. And there are a lot of conventions each year, maybe even too many. And, you know, there's a degree of depreciation. Maybe, like, uh, conventions aren't being as rewarding as they could be. So in the article, I just talked about some of the problems and I think... I don't want to take credit for it because I know Sarah Millman wrote an amazing article and did some amazing Twitter threads and chats about it. And I'm hoping we'll get Sarah on uh, as a special guest at some point so she can give her her side of things. But we both wrote these pieces and there just seemed to be a buzz in the air. Like a lot of people were talking about this. Like we had quite a good time at MCM, but 
a lot of people were unhappy and maybe it was a feeling that it's reaching a kind of breaking point. Um, so yeah, I don't know, maybe it's just like the zeitgeist. A lot of people seem to be disgruntled, if you were. So based on these two kind of blog posts that me and Sarah did and based on some of the buzz that was going around, we also, um, the two of us appeared on the Awesome Comics podcast with Dan, Vince and... Um, oh God, that's embarrassing. And Tony, oh God, he's going to kill me. Tony, Tony, Dan and Vince, sorry, I had a senior moment there. And yeah, we tried to just talk about some of these problems. So... That, that there is a bit of a discussion going at the moment, and yeah, and it's it's weird because I'm at this point where it's something I I feel really I feel very passionate about. I feel very committed to, and I'm kind of quite surprised at how passionate I'm getting over this because you always just want to kind of keep your head down and just get on with what you're doing and try not to rock the boat, but. It's something I've seen like so much in comics, and it's something that really affected me when I started was this idea of I want the moment I got in, I wanted out. You know, I never set out to be an indie creator, it kind of just crept up on me. But all my childhood ideas about how you make comics were tied up in the idea of a publisher system. You know, the Marvel DC image route, the idea that simply even you know, from a writer's perspective, you had an idea. You had a script, you took it to these people, hopefully you impressed them, and then all the work was done for you. As that never happened, like as I learned very quickly, like this is not how comics me- are made, really. Um, you know, I had to kind of sacrifice a lot of those naive ideas, and I ended up being an indie creator. I ended up learning that you could do it yourself you could control your own books and get more of a return let's face it in directly cultivating your fans it's a slower burn and it's a harder burn but it is possible and you know and in many ways it's been the most rewarding journey you could imagine like if i'd you know if i hadn't kind of found myself thrown into the world of self-publishing like i never would have met so so many amazing people i now consider friends, I never would have got involved in this community, you know, I never would have met Nick and Ali, and, you know, the four of us would never have set up Big Punch Studios, we never would have had this shared universe, like, I care so passionately about, and as we've gone on, and I know it's something like Nick and I have talked about at length, we've become increasingly kind of disillusioned with the publisher idea, but we're in, we're an industry built on desperation, and I'm still guilty of it, even now. I even get these moments where it still hits me where we're still waiting for that fairy godmother moment. You know, it's always like, who do I impress? Who do I kind of get the word out to? Or if only so-and-so could see me, if only this big publisher or editor could see my work, then I'd suddenly be, you know, the hand of God would come down and pluck me out of this and take me away to a better world. And... It's like, what if it never happens? Like, what if it never gets any better than this? What does that mean? What does it mean? You know, you ask yourself and you think, what does it mean for me personally? If I'm still doing this in 30 years time, if I'm still going to conventions and I'm selling my book across the table, will it have been a failure? You know, will 
Will it all have been worth nothing? Well, no, no, I don't know. And I, I think this, these are the questions I've had to ask myself. I'm like, no, I don't think it would be. Like, even just on the most personal level, like if I could say I'd spent 30 years making comics, you know, with with my friends, like, you know, with my wife, if like the four of us spent a lifetime making something creative, it's like, no, that's not wasted. Like that would be the greatest joy I could imagine. So I'm like, if this is as good as it gets, like if the comic village is our life going forward, then how can we make it better? Because I think part of this innate belief that we can be plucked from obscurity and kind of taken somewhere better, you know, I think part of that is hurting us because we're willing to accept bad conditions because we know it's not forever or we think it's not forever. You know, oh, you know, this convention wasn't great. Eh, you know, so what? I just, I think there is a world of difference between the people who are making comics day in, day out, cultivating a dedicated, loyal fan base, but not reaching widespread acclaim because they don't have the time or the resources. I think there is a world of difference between them and people working for the larger publishers. Which is not to put them down, because they are incredibly talented, of course, and, you know, they are achieving great things. But as an industry, we are only looking at and talking about the things that are making waves. Like, we talk about Marvel, DC, and Image. You know, we talk about indie comics, and the things that come up are things I've never heard of. I know that sounds incredibly arrogant, but what I mean by it is we are a small enough community that I know, just by virtue of going to conventions a lot, I know the people who make up the UK comics scene. And I don't think these people are being represented. At all. You know, I mean, we, we seem to fall between two camps. You can either be super populist you know, whatever your definition of a word is, but, you know, you can either be Marvel, DC, or Image, the things which are not really considered high art, even though I love them. I do love them. This isn't a criticism. But you know what I mean, superhero comics. They're not regarded as works of art. I love them. I grew up on them. But, you know, this is what we accept. Then at the other end of it, you have a super kind of for, you know, I refer to them as arty comics, you know, the literary comics, the things that move closer to the book world, the things that get great critical acclaim. But at the same time, you don't see them at comic conventions. And then somewhere in the middle, you have these, the people I know, like the, the thousand or so, God, I'm not, I couldn't estimate the numbers, but maybe like several hundred, better part of a thousand maybe, amazing creators in the UK alone, who just make the best damn comics they can off their own back. And they don't have publicity teams. They don't have the backing of a larger publisher. They do it because they love it. And they get up super early and drive very long distances to stay in pretty crappy accommodation to sell them. You know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication. But, you know, when we talk about UK comics, what do we talk about? We don't talk about these people. You know, where do we find these people's books? Well, you know, they're selling it at conventions. 
you know, it's a personal bugbear of mine when you see, when you see like an article written by a very successful person. But it's always like, you know, I get asked a lot, how do you get into comics? And here's what I did. And they talk about their story. And it's like the reality of working as a kind of freelance, successful jobbing writer, maybe having a lot of series on the boil, pitching different stuff to... It's like once you're in, you're moving in a very different circle. And it's like, while I don't begrudge, or indeed I'm not attempting to kind of put down their achievements, but it's like when you go to a convention... Are you there off your own back? Do you drive, pay for accommodation, you know, get up super early, lug all your boxes onto the floor? You know, are you working from 10 a.m. when the doors open to 6 p.m. when they shut, or if it's MCM time, from like 9 in the morning to 7 at night sometimes? Are you working that long day selling the books to customers, to talking to fans, to being engaging? Because if you don't, Maybe your next book doesn't get made because you don't make enough money. Or are you there, be- sell, you know, doing signings? Are you there because you're already famous? Like, are you there because you want to be? Are you there because you need to be? And it's like, I'm not sure the average person going to a convention would see the difference, but there is a world of difference. And I'm just, I don't think there should be any there shouldn't be any shame. There shouldn't be any kind of sense of failure because you're not living the comic's dream. Heavy air quotation marks, you know. Because you're not being flown out on the publisher's dime. And this is what gets me passionate. This is what gets me fired up because I'm like, there are books I love by creators I consider very good friends whose work is phenomenal but it's not getting out there, you know, or it's not getting, these creators aren't getting the support they deserve. And that's what annoys me, especially when, you know, and it does happen, this is the thing, like this kind of fairy godmother effect happens enough, it's very rare, but it happens enough where it just cements the myth, it cements the idea. And yeah, and I must admit, it's very hard when all the, all the comics news is talking about you know, the movers and the shakers, and then there's people down in the trenches just doing it day in, day out. So yeah, another little, I, I saw I saw some people talking on Twitter lately about some new anthology, like the best of, the best of indie comics, and again, I didn't recognise a single person in it, you know, and I'm sure they're all wonder, like, incredibly talented people, but it's like, who are these people? Like, you know, where, what circles do they move in? Like, why, why do we never see them at comic conventions? Like, how are we defining indie? I don't, I don't know here. So yeah, so I hope you can tell from some of the, clearly, you know, it is something I care about, but I hope you can see why I consider this an issue and why I think we can do more to protect ourselves, to improve our lot. Because, I've got so much respect, and I've I said this in the article, and I said this, I said this in the Awesome Comics interview, but I have so much respect for webcomic creators because I, I I think as a UK comic book scene, by which I mean our products and creative output revolves almost entirely around um you know making physical books and and selling them, 
at, ta- at tables or on our online store. I think we've missed a trick here. I think, like, particularly the American webcomic crowd are doing it right. Because, you know, they're making content constantly. They're, you know, putting it straight up on the web. You know, their, their fans can read it, can love it, can comment on it, can share it, can engage with it year-round. And then maybe once a year, they do a Kickstarter to do a print run. They already have an inbuilt community ready to, you know, to buy it, right? Who are eager for it, who are waiting for it. And then, you know, when they're not buying that book, they buy merchandise because they want to support their creator. And it's like, I, I'm a big fan of Chris Straub, American creator and writer, artist, comedian. And he's fantastically funny and I have a hell of a man crush on him. But it's like he's got a couple of web comics. He has... um. He has Chainsaw Suit, which is like a kind of three-time-a-week gag comic. And he also has Brood Hollow, which is like Tintin meets the Cthulhu mythos. And it is, it's astonishingly good. And it's like, do you think he cares that he doesn't have a publisher? Like, he's moving in completely different circles to the comic crowd. You know, you talk talk about in comics, like, he's not going to be spoken of in the same sense as we might speak of, I don't know, Kieran Gillen, um... Matt Fraction, you know, Grant Morrison, you know, these these big names in comics. Like, he's just sidestepped it. He's just out there doing his thing. But do you think he cares? You know, it's like he has dedicated fans. I reckon he gets more fan engagement than a lot of the creators I just named. Because they can talk to him directly. You know, he rocks up with a Kickstarter off his own back. No publishers. Bang. Amazing success story. And it's like, I think this is a thing we should be learning from. We should be cultivating fans year-round and away from the convention table. We want to reach a point where we're going to conventions because we want to, because we want to meet fans, not because we need to. And, you know, Big Punch is, is doing what we can. We're trying to diversify. We're trying to, you know, explore new avenues. And maybe that does mean we have to pretend to be business people, even though we're not, and we're making it up as we go along. But... I don't think business is a dirty word. I don't think kind of worrying about money is shameful. Yeah, we're all artists. We're all doing it for the love. But at the same time, we need to look after ourselves. And part of that is respecting our product, respecting ourselves. And yeah, just, you know, trying to get a fair return on what we do. And that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. So yeah, so a lot of chatter at the moment. And I feel like there's a few things condensing out of it. And it's like, one... Things are not ideal. How can we make them better? Two, we're not going to be able to make it better and negotiate with conventions to do more interesting stuff if we can't find a unified voice. Look, I mean, like, I'm sitting here spouting about this, but it's like, what authority do I have to speak on behalf of the comic village? Like, I don't think I have that authority. Like, I could maybe charge in and pretend I did, but we don't want that. I think the last thing we want or need right now is another person acting without the backing of the of the crowd. Like I think we need to speak uh, together or not at all. So three things I think could help. Now I was talking of unionizing, and I think it's a step too far. I think it's not something people will go for, and I'm not even sure it's the right idea anyway. But someone, and it's terrible because I can't remember the name, and I do apologize, but. Someone has raised the idea of a guild 
And this is an idea I very much like because another idea I really like the idea of, an idea I like the idea of, an idea that really struck me early on, I think has legs, is the idea of a comic village charter. You know, a an agreement. It's not legally binding. Certainly no financial, you know, demand. We're not, it's, the purpose of it would not be to make money off everyone. But it would be something shaped by the people who sign it. Like, as a community, we come together and we make this shared agreement, this shared statement of intent, this shared promise about how we will act, how we will look after ourselves. Now, two people have also raised the point of turning that into a wiki, into an online resource where we give people the information they need, the information which was so very kindly offered to me when I started. You know, I would never have got a foot in the door. I never would have started making comics if people hadn't been so damn helpful at shows and taught me things. Like, a place where we could share information, inform each other. And when some kid, you know, like I was back in the day, says, I want to make comics, you know, we can offer an alternative thing where we can say, look, here's one idea of making comics. Here's another idea of making comics. And here's the idea that says... You can do it off your own back and you can make it worthwhile. Like that's a thing. So a resource for people, uh, an agreement, a shared promise, uh, a little badge you could put on your website or books or, you know, and you could put your logo on the charter website. But just to say, you know, this, these are the shared ideals and promises I'm agreeing to and making. It's an agreement to respect yourself, to respect your fellow convention goers. And this is where the unified voice comes in, because it has to be something that the majority can agree on. We're not going to please everyone. It's never going to happen. But we have to come together to talk about this. Because I think, you know, we need to get our own house in order. And there are certain negative things that we do. Like, we're not blameless. There are things we need to root out. And we need to act a little better. And I think that's part of the coming together. So, one... The charter. Like two, a guild. Three, and relating to the previous two, we talked about a meetup, like an opportunity where it's a convention which isn't a convention. An opportunity for an open summit, if you will, state of the nation, for creators to come together and actually meet for a day and talk about this stuff. And look, I can all, you know, full disclosure. It'll probably descend into a great big argument, or it'll probably descend into a great big uh, kind of susurrus of voices. But it's better than what we have at the moment. At the moment, there is no dialogue. Or if there is a dialogue, it's happening in three or four different message boards. It's happening in different Facebook groups. It's happening across Twitter. You know, how can we at least try and get people together? So this is something. I'm looking into. I'm, I'm, I'm putting out a few feelers behind the scenes. But you might see if we can make this happen and have this kind of open event that people can attend just for a day. Even if we just all turn up and fall out. Just to say we, we were in a room together talking about some of our problems. And I do a bit of events work, you know, in my line of work. I, I think this is something we can make happen. I think it would be worthwhile because I think that could be a step towards, even if you imagine an event where 
we can pitch some of these ideas, the idea of a charter, the idea of a guild, we can pitch these ideas to the community. And we can say, look, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you want to be involved in? Do you think this is a good idea? Is it something you'd like to help shape? You know, I'd like the idea of, we all throw ideas into the hat. We talk about things, you know, I don't know. We need, we need to talk about this. So I think, yeah, like I said, putting some early day feeders out to see if we can make this happen. But the trick will be if we can indeed get a venue, if we can indeed organize an event of this nature, the trick will be getting the word out there, like properly disseminating it because we want as many people as possible involved. If we come together, you know, we might be able to make some of these ideas happen. So yeah, charter, a guild, a meetup. And I think, you know, another really fun idea and perhaps just to end on, um, I love, I really, really, really would love the idea of setting up a new award ceremony. Because we have the British Comic Book Awards, but that is open to all British creators. I believe the only criteria are that you've published a book in the last year and you are British. So bravo, hey, you know, you got nominated for like best comic or best writer. That's wonderful. The shortlist is going to be image creators in 2000 AD because they fall under the same criteria as you. Now, I know this is petty and I know this is you know, another award ceremony, is that only diluting the message? Is that just a bit kind of self-serving? But yes, it is self-serving. It is, entirely. An award ceremony only has as much weight or validity as we're willing to assign to it. But I'd like to see an award ceremony run by, you know, our peers, for our peers. You know, I'd like the only criteria for entry be that you have exhibited with your book at some point, you know, open-ended, like we have to, it's not that, hey, you've worked for a bigger publisher, you can't enter. No, that's not the case. It's just like, have you exhibited, have you lived for life of taking that book to a show and selling it across the table? Because frankly, I feel those are the only conditions you would need to enter. And much like the Oscars, maybe this could work in, in favour with the Guild. Like, you know, maybe this is the reward for being a member. Like, But I'd love it if we talked, we've just been spitballing ideas, but we talked about the idea of drawing a random jury of creators each year. And if you are drawn to be on the judging panel that year, you cannot enter that year. But, you know, you could then nominate... You could self-nominate, but we'd like the idea that you're seconded. And the only criteria, like I said, would be, have you exhibited at some point? It's a bit open-ended, and I'm, I freely admit there would have to, there'd be a lot of kinks to iron out. But like I said at the start of the podcast, there, there's this missing demographic of comic creators who aren't being represented. And so what if it just becomes a mini-industry jolly where we just pat each other on the back and say, good job? So what? I mean, maybe we need that. Maybe we need to respect ourselves and say, no, our work is not invalidated by being small press. Our work can be respected and deserves to be respected. And hey, you know, my fellow creators who are in the same boat as me decided to give you an award. How cool is that? 
So that's something I would really like to make happen. And out of all the things, that's probably that's probably the most attainable. But I'd really like it to be above board. And because I, you know, it's, it's a shame in a way because you almost wish someone else would do it. But it's like it's something I care about, and it's something I feel kind of driven to make happen. So I'm going to be making, I'm going to be putting out some feelers about that as well. I'm going to be starting some. Starting some work to see if we can't make that happen. And I think communication will be key. Like I said, the last thing we want is somebody pretending to or acting like they're lording it over the comic village when it's really not my intent. It's just I just I just care about it. And I just want to see the people I respect get a bit more love and attention. Because I think having an event like that, if you have like a ceremony, call it the comic village or wolves or whatever. We can use that as publicity. We can use that as a bargaining chip with, say, MCM or the large conventions. It's a thing. It's a stunt. It's a... But why not? Why can't we act like the big publishers? Why can't we act like we're worthy of this stuff? And if the catch is that, you know, because we helped get it off the ground that Big Punch Studios never gets to enter and never gets to win an award, so be it. You know, so be it. I'd rather it exists and we not win an award than... You know, the alternative. Because it's like, I want to represent, I want to help these people. Because, you know, I love this community. You know? it, like, I would never have got started. I would never have made comics if it weren't for, you know, the friendship I, I encountered, the kindness. And, you know, I always wondered, like, how do you make comics? How do you get into the comic book industry? And it's like, are you making a comic? Yeah. I was like, well, bravo. You're in the comic book industry. And... It's time we valued your work. So, hey, big thoughts. Uh, and, you know, maybe some work to be done, but it's interesting. So, a uh, very quick roundup of life outside of me and the mic and the coffee. Um, we just got issue 10 of Extraversal out in the post to our subscribers and backers, which is incredible. We've had some photos come in via Twitter, so we know people are receiving it. Um, absolutely incredible. You know, I, I can't believe we made it to double figures and we're still going uh very excited for year four big stuff coming i can guarantee so that's just i mean wow yeah it's just exciting times exciting times and thank you to everyone who supported us and particularly our subscribers and patrons in making this happen because i don't know there were some people who were skeptical and you know i think 10 issues is pretty compelling so it feels good it feels good we're in that nice little lull after getting an issue out where maybe we can stop and smell the roses because, you know, we're always moving on to the next project, but maybe we can say, yeah, you did all right. Very proud of it. Um, and, of course, Afterlife Inc., Man-Made God, is going to print at the end of the month, which I think I am in complete denial about. I can't believe it's actually happening. I can't believe with this organised. I keep expecting something to go wrong, but... Like, no, we're actually on top of it. Like, it's stunning. I'm I'm as shocked as anyone, but yeah. Uh, Verity, who's been working like an absolute trooper, is finishing off the colours on the last chapter. Lucy has some final lettering edits to make, and she's been absolutely incredible. Lettering and putting up with my many, my many edits, because I'm a monster. And, yeah, we're actually going to have Volume 4 of After, I think, very soon. And that's, like I said, I, incredible. I can I hardly believe it's happening. So 
exciting times, exciting times. So uh, I think I'm going to sign off now. I have a very exciting weekend, which will be kicking off in, ooh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, about six hours. I'm going to be uh, hitting the road down to Cornwall with Nick and eight of my, no, no, wait, there's nine of us in total. So me, Nick, and seven, seven of my good lifelong friends, we are hitting the road down to Cornwall for a very exciting weekend away in which I am going to formally ask them all to be a part of my wedding to Lucy. They are going to be my honour guard for our gifts. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to ask him, you know, formally. That's going to take about five minutes. And then we're going to go to a brewery. So happy days. But yeah, it's exciting times. So guys, I hope you have an amazing weekend. I hope you got through the heat. And I hope you're enjoying your coffee. I'll see you next time. Bye.